0: right. well I asked earlier but not everybody was here did did everybody have a good Christmas good deal uh, just I love this time of year Um, you know it's a time you get a lot of different opinions even amongst Christians on uh, if and how we should celebrate Christmas and all these different things. But uh, I hope that uh, each one of you guys have, have, you know, have stopped uh, in your personal life, in your, in your quiet time, in your own thoughts. You know, if you're married, maybe with your spouse, if you've got kids, with your, with your whole family. And just really pause, just to, and thought even more so about Christ, what He, what he has done. That's, that's really what this time of year should, should be for us. I mean, obviously as believers, you know, we need to be contemplating these things on a regular basis, but uh, you know, this, this time of year, the Christmas season, guys, you realize even, even the world stops and, and recognizes Christmas for the most part, in a large part. You know, a lot of times it's the only, only time certain businesses will, businesses will maybe stop close their doors. So, because the world, whether they worship Christ or not, they, they know what it's about. Um, and it's still, you know, culturally acceptable. And so as, as believers, my, my hope for you guys, again, that you have just really thought much about Christ, that's what led me to John 3.16 in my quiet time the other morning. I was looking at doing another passage and I I just found myself thanking the Lord for John 3.16. And so that's when I chose to look at John 3.16 today. Don't ever think that I'm going to, again, you know, nitpick about how I think you should celebrate Christmas or not celebrate Christmas. No, I think what we should do for this time of year, guys, is use it for the glory of God. Right? I mean, this... God's Word says whether we eat or drink, do it for the glory of God. So, you know, this, this thing that we call Christmas where we celebrate, where we remember His coming into the world, I say do it for the glory of God. However you want to celebrate what the world would call Christmas, but just do it for the glory of God. That's, that's my thoughts on it. Is what, a, what an opportunity. That, you know, it's on people's minds. The Christ, the child that God sent. And so what an opportunity to just use it for God's glory. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay, Don't ever let anybody tell you that there's something wrong with focusing on Christ and His coming to this earth. Nothing wrong whatsoever. Do it all to His glory. And so we're looking at John 3.16 today. Right? Even the world can quote this verse. You can see this verse on, on uh, poster boards at football games. And, uh, and so... A lot of people that don't believe it, they can quote it. Used to be probably the most quoted verse. I would say Matthew seven one is now. You know, judge not that you be not judged. But John three sixteen. It's a very familiar verse, right? And I don't know if you guys are like me, but you can become so familiar with a passage of scripture that you tend to maybe forget the significance of it, or the just the glorious nature of it, because we become so familiar with it. But I hope that as we look at this verse today, guys, that you'll be reminded in a fresh way what a glorious truth John 3.16 is. (laughs) Why it's the most popular verse in the Bible. There's a reason. You know, and I was thinking as I was reading, you know, what's the most significant verse, important verse? Now that's obviously subjective. All of God's Word is, is God's revealed Word. So I would never dare say that there's some objective answer to that question. But when we think about, let's say, Genesis 1, that's a very important verse, is it not? <laughs> God created the world. God spoke this world into existence. But if you think about the story of creation, you know, we can, we can look at Romans 1 and Romans 2, and we can see that the Word of God tells us that there's a Creator, that all men know that there's a Creator through general Revelation. Through His creation, all men know, in a certain sense, about the one true God. And also, all men know, Romans 2 tells us, His morality, His moral standards, because it's written upon our heart. So in essence, even these things can be known through general revelation. The fact that we're made in God's image, that He's given us a creation, that He's written His law upon our heart. so we... We innately know right from wrong. We can know that there's a creator, but when it comes to John three sixteen, guys, and, and what God has did, done for sinners, we have to know the truth of what John three sixteen says. It's God's special revelation. That's what makes it so beautiful. Is it's, Martin Luther said he, he described it as this. He he said it's the Bible in miniature. If you want to know the story of the Bible, it's John 3.16. And that's what makes it so glorious. You can can look at John 3.16 as as hopefully by God's grace we'll be able to see today. And you can tell somebody all they need to know about, about their condition, about where we came from, about what the penalty for that is and about what God's done for our provision. All right there in John 3.16. Let's read John 3.16. You don't have to stand. Obviously, we don't have to read it. We can all we all have it memorized, but I'll, I will read it. Again, I'm reading now the New American Standard. It says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, we thank You. We thank You for the truth that is revealed in this one verse. This one statement by our Lord while He was on earth to Nicodemus. Father, I pray, God, that we will get a, just a fresh look, a fresh reminder as Shiloh was reminding us, Lord, that we will see the gospel, that we will see what you have done for us, Lord. That it will not become, just be, that we will not be just so familiar with it, Lord, that it, that, that it loses its power in our lives, Lord, but that we'll see all of the depth of your love and your marvelous gift that you've given us. Lord, I pray that it will cause us to love you more today. And I pray that if there is any who do not know you, Lord, that you'll use this, this so familiar verse, Lord, in their life, Lord, to reveal yourself to them today, Lord. We praise you and thank you for your word. In Christ's name, Amen. Now, if this verse, guys, if John 3.16 that we just read, if this verse were not true, let's just say, if this verse were not true, then nothing else would. That we did would matter. If God had not sent His Son into the world, really nothing would matter. Nothing would matter as far as our church life, right? This is the main thing. And if He had not come and and given His, if God had not sent His Son for us, nothing we do would matter. Really, nothing that we do in life would matter, right? It would be eat. Drink, be merry, because you better live it up now. This really would be our best life now if if this verse were not true. Because all we would have to expect was death and, and judgment. This verse doesn't mean a thing as I was thinking about this. Now, people would not admit this, but this verse, the truth that's found in this text, really doesn't mean a thing to the cults. To those religions who teach a works righteousness. John 3.16 doesn't mean a thing. They may say it does, but it really doesn't. Because this is the gift that God has given, has given us. And without it, as we'll see, we would be hopeless. But, because of God's sovereign grace that we talk about, it was His choice, okay? His grace His choice, His love, because of that reality, this verse is a reality. He did send His Son. I know I'm speaking the obvious. But He did send His Son. And praise be to God that He sent His Son. Praise be to God that this truth is a reality, guys. And this is why. Because so was the truth of our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeying God. That was a reality. That is a reality. That's what makes John 3.16 such a glorious truth. Is because the reality is that our first parents, our federal head, Adam and Eve, plunged us through their disobedience all into sin. Whether we like it or not, whether somebody who wants nothing to do with God likes it or not, that's a reality. That's a reality. That's what makes this truth Such a glorious reality. If you want to flip in your Bible, I'm not going to turn there and read, but I'll mention a few things from Genesis chapter 3. Again, when they sinned, guys, when Adam and Eve sinned, when they rebelled against God, when they disobeyed God, it plunged us all. That's why we are identified with Adam when we come into this world. Until... God saves us by His grace and we come under the headship of the second Adam who is Christ. But in Genesis chapter 3, guys, when they had sinned, the serpent tempted them, they have sinned, and in verse 7 it says, immediately, they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So we we see immediately when they sinned, we see immediately that they that they were had a sense of shame. We see immediately that they that they attempted immediately to do something about it in their own strength. They covered themselves with fig leaves, what we call fig, fig leaves of self righteousness is basically how we can apply that nowadays. But then we see then we see if you keep reading past three seven, we see the blame game start. You guys familiar with that? When Adam and Eve, after they sinned before God and God searched for them, not that He was looking, but Adam, where are you? He was giving Adam a chance to repent, to fess up. But we see them immediately before God. This is the the immediate effects of sin. Do you see it? When they blame God, what does Adam say? God addresses Adam. And we see Adam blaming Eve. The... And really, who is he blaming? He said, the woman that you gave me. So we see immediately the result of sin. Him blaming God. Blaming the perfect holy God for his sin. The woman you gave me. Or I, I, would, I would say the woman you gave me. That's where the emphasis was. The woman you gave me. And then what does Eve say? She's blaming the serpent. The devil made me do it. And you guys, if you think about that, what a what a pick, what a foundational picture that is of what sin does. That's what people do until God opens our eyes by His grace. We play the blame game. It's real popular nowadays. As I was looking over this, this today this morning. And thinking of the blame game, how all people do it until... until Because what is repentance? Repentance is when we come to grips with our sin. For the first time in our life, we're not blaming anybody. We come to grips with it. It's agreeing with God. And that's all. That's what the Lord was trying to get Adam to do. To acknowledge his sin. I agree with you. Yes, I'm guilty. Have mercy upon me. But what do we see people doing in our culture? Especially those of... And I don't want to say especially because many people do this, but when you think of the the LGBT community, God made me this way. It's it's blaming God. It's it's just a natural thing to do, right? In, In our sin. Until God, by His grace, opens our eyes and we realize, like Nathan the prophet told David, no, you're the man. You're the man. You're guilty. And then we acknowledge it before God and we receive his grace, and then we wonder we wonder how we could have been so blind. But then we go on. We we see the immediate effects of sin. And then in Genesis three fifteen, we, we reference this verse a lot. We're gonna look at two passages real quickly in Genesis three where we see immediately after the fall, God already, already pointing to John 3.16. In Genesis 3.15, after the fall, when God is pronouncing the curse, He tells the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So we see the enmity that's between Your seed and her seed. We see Satan and all of his demonic hosts. We see really all of, the, all of the people in the world who the Bible calls, if we're not a child of God, we're a child of the devil. The opposition towards Christ. We can see that in this verse. And then, and then her seed, it is Christ. And, and all of His offspring through faith. But it's, but it's specifically talking about Christ. God tells the serpent, He, Christ, the woman's seed, shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. What's He saying here? He's saying, yeah, you're going, to, you're going to bruise him on the hill. Christ is going to suffer. Christ is going to suffer when He comes into this world. He's going to suffer at the hands of rebellious, sinful men. He's going to suffer rejection. He's going to suffer beatings. He's going to suffer physically upon the cross. But, God tells him, but He is going to bruise you on the head. Meaning, you're going to be fully and finally defeated through His sinless life, His death upon the cross, and His resurrection. Right? Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Christ crushed the serpent's head his work upon the cross. And that's what that was pointing to. And then in Genesis 3.21 we see it again. We see the Lord immediately after the fall making provision for them. Genesis 3.21 The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Clearly a, a foreshadowing of the one who would come. The Lamb of God. What, what do we see in this verse? We see the first death recorded in Scripture. And God is the one who performed it. We see the reminder that provision for sin requires blood, requires death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And, and then again, we see God providing for them, providing a covering, clothing them which is a foreshadowing of the righteousness of Christ that clothes us. Not our fig leaves of self-righteousness like Adam and Eve attempted, but the perfect righteousness of Christ that we see all the way back in Revelation. The saints clothed with that pure righteousness. So we see it. We see it in Genesis. And you could follow it. You could follow it through the Old Testament. These foreshadowings of John 3.16. You know the song we sang, right? Adam. Christ was the better Adam. Christ was the better Moses. He was the one, he's the one who leads His people. He is the great prophet. Christ is the better David. He's the, he, David was a, a shadow of the great shepherd who would come. He was a shadow of the King of Kings. The king who would sit on the throne of David. It's all pointing towards Christ. Last week we talked about Noah and the ark. The ark. A shadow of Christ. Where we get in the ark and we find refuge. And of course, this was not plan B. Right? You guys know that. when, when Adam and Eve sinned, the Godhead did not have a meeting and say, well... What are we going to do now? No. So there there was no plan B. Actually, there's no plan A. There's just the plan. There's the plan that is called the predetermined plan before the foundation of the world. That Christ was predetermined before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of time to come and to pay the price for the people that the Father had given Him. That is called the covenant of redemption. And the the Bible gives glimpses of that. I know there's one in Ephesians. It gives glimpses of that. That that there is this eternal council meeting between we can see at least the Father and the Son. of, Of redemption. It's a glorious thing. But in time, right? We dwell in time. In time, after the creation of the world, we see God already pointing to the reality of John 3.16, but also the necessity of John 3.16. And that's what we're going to look at. You'll turn to John chapter 3 if you're not already there. Real quickly, we'll kind of lead up to it. So we see in John chapter 3 Jesus having this discussion with Nicodemus. Right? You can see it in verse 1, who Nicodemus was. He was a, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. And they're having this discussion, basically, that ends up being just a discussion about eternal life. In verse 2, we see this man came to Jesus by night and said to Him this. Now, we're not going through these texts, but I did want to point out a couple things. He says, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him." One thing that we can see that's different with with Nicodemus than most of the other Pharisees is you remember what some of them accused him of doing his works by the power of? By the power of the devil. By the power of Satan. So we see Nicodemus clearly doesn't... He's not thinking like that. He's saying just the opposite. These things you're doing, we we know that you've got to be from God. And so basically, then then Christ goes through the next several verses explaining the new birth. That a man must be born again if he's going to see the kingdom of God. In essence, he's telling Nicodemus, this, this Pharisee, this ruler of the Jews, that none of his religion, right? None of his works, none of his religious titles is going to help him at all. They can't help him. But that salvation is of the Lord. That's what he's basically telling him. Salvation is of the Lord. Which echoes the Old Testament. He should have known these things. These things were mentioned in the Old Testament. The the coming of the Messiah. The the need for the new birth. the, The new heart. He said, you're a teacher of Israel in verse 10, and you don't understand these things? And then in verse 14, Jesus is pointing towards... Him being lifted up upon the cross. If you look at verse fourteen, Moses lift, or as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So he's pointing. He's pointing towards his death upon the cross, being lifted up, referring back to the story in Numbers twenty-one, where where the Israelites who were bitten by the Poisonous serpents when they when they looked at the serpent on Moses' staff that he lifted up, they were healed physically. And so this Jesus is giving that as an illustration, pointing towards again something greater, which that was a shadow of. Those who will look to the Son of Man, to the Son of God, lifted up on the cross, will be healed. Spiritually. Spiritually from what? From the serpent's bite in the garden. The result of the fall. Sin. There's there's one cure and that's to... What do we tell people? What, What do we tell people? Look to Christ. That's where that language comes from. Look to Him. It's the same language. Look to Him. Believe in Him. That's what we see in verse 15. So that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. So there's there's the flow that gets us to verse 16. So that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. And here's verse 16. Here He is, guys. Starting in Genesis 3. Here He is. He's on the scene now. The promised one. The Messiah. Paul calls Him in Galatians 1 our Rescuer. Here He is. John 3.16 I'll read it one more time. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you don't have that verse memorized, memorize it. <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can share the Gospel off that verse. It's just all there. Right there. So here He is. So we we'll are look at three things today in this, in this verse. God's love, God's gift, and God's promise. So God's love. For God so loved the world. God's love. says so He so loved the world. This, this term is just speaking of mankind in general. Okay? Mankind in general. Fallen humanity. That's all He's got to deal with. Fallen humanity. Willful. The fallen humanity that is in willful rebellion towards God. God so loved the world. That's what makes this love so amazing is because of sinful humanity. And what's so amazing about it, guys, is that we would remain in that state as as we know if He had not loved us first. The only reason why some of humanity loves Him is because He loved us first. But this sinful... Rebellious humanity. To get a a good, just a snapshot of of a description of this, turn to Romans 3. Several verses, but they're all real short. Romans 3, 9 through uh, 18. Because that's who he's talking about in this verse sinful humanity. Paul says in Romans 3, What then? Are we better than they? meaning Jews and Gentiles, or you may say Greeks, not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Whenever you see a phrase that says Jews and Greeks or Jews and Gentiles, that is talking about all humanity. Okay? And what does it say? They're all under sin as it is written. And this is all quoting from the Old Testament. Mostly Psalms, Psalm Isaiah. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. That's not hard to understand, is it? None righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There are none who seek after God. All, all have turned aside. Together, they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So, so he just described the whole human race. And so these next few verses is describing the entire human race. Their throat is an open grave. So, so just picture what it would look like to open a grave up. That's what he's trying to communicate. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth, Is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Welcome to the 10 o'clock news. That's the world, guys, that he came into. That's it. A world, this world of sinners. And specifically, this, this word world is in, is referring to not only the Jews, but all nations. Okay, That's really the significance of this word world, especially talking to Nicodemus. You've got to remember the mindset of the Jews. They thought that it was only for the nation of Israel. And if they had read their scriptures closer in the Old Testament, it was never supposed to be that way. Even in the Abrahamic Covenant, you can see a blessing to the nations. Blessing to the nations. But they they thought that the Messiah was coming to deliver Israel from their oppressors, their Roman oppressors and other nations. But no, guys, this this word world is implying not just the Jews, but all the nations, the Jews and the Gentiles, us here today. So we can be extra thankful for this. He came for those in all nations. You here today, sitting right here today, John 3.16, He came for the world. Every tribe, every tongue, every land. 1 John 2.2 2 points to this as well. He Himself, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. And again, he's emphasizing not just ours as the Jews, but it's the for the sins of the whole world. And just real quickly, you know, we teach a doctrine called limited atonement or particular redemption. That Christ died for His people upon the cross. The, and to, to best understand the truth of that is understanding propitiation. When we understand what that word means, that He made propitiation for our sins. Guys, when it says that Christ made propitiation for our sins, that means He fully satisfied the wrath of God. He appeased the wrath of God for those whom He died for. He turned away the wrath of God. The wrath of God has been turned away from those He died for because Christ drank it all. Fully satisfied. So for those whom Christ died for, their sins have been placed upon Him and He, and he satisfied them, Satisfied God's anger. And so that's why we know that when it says that He has made propitiation for our sins, He hasn't made propitiation for every single person in the world or, or else no, there would be no hell. I hope that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. Propitiation means that wrath has been satisfied, turned away. And He's done that for... He will have, as Revelation 7-9 says, people from every tribe, every nation, every people group, every tongue will be before His throne. Not just for a particular nation. And it says, for God so loved the world, the word so, it just emphasizing the greatness of it. The greatness of it. So much... So dearly. And this love, this word love, it is it is a pity and a compassion is what it is in John 3.16. That He has, again, for mankind, for His creation. For His creation that He made in His image the imago Dei. We're different than dogs and cats. This Yes, this image... Some people, some people say that we're not in God's image anymore because of sin. I don't hold to that. I think that man is still in his image, although that image has been blurred, it's been marred through sin, through the fall. This love, it's an agape love, meaning it's just a giving love, a self or, or a sacrificial love. It, it certainly wasn't anything you and I did, right? It's so nothing in us, nothing nothing in us, nothing in the creature, in other words, motivated Him. Oh, they're so lovely, I'm going to send my son. No, but it was all in His love. That was the motivation. Okay? But even this, even this pity, and I'm going to come back to this at the end, even this pity and compassion, you know, when you think of the prophet Ezekiel, where the Lord says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked.
1: But that the wicked
0: would turn from His way and live. Even this pity and this this compassion, it's not to be confused with His special love that He has for His people. For His elect. In John 13, 1, it says, He loved them. It says He loved them who were His own. He loved them to the end. That means imperfection. If you can think about God's love being imperfection. To the end. Eternally. Fully. You see, because when the sinner dies who who rejects Christ, they won't experience God's love after that point. They will experience God's anger. So, So what motivated God sending His Son, giving His Son His love? So the first thing we see is God's love for mankind. Secondly, we see God's gift. God's gift. So the question is, what was what was the result of God's love for the world? What was the result of God's love for the world? The very next phrase, that he gave his only begotten son. That's the result of God's love. Literally, this phrase means it is worded like this, that his son, the only begotten, he gave That His Son, the only begotten, He gave. So the emphasis in the original is on the greatness of the gift. In other words, that His Son, the only begotten, He gave. The emphasis is on the gift, on Christ. Right? Is that not the emphasis of the Bible? From Genesis to Revelation? It's on Christ. If we read our Bibles... And we don't see Christ as the emphasis. We need to read it again. He is the Bible. Like Luther said, this is the Bible in miniature that God sent His Son. And so the emphasis in this phrase is on the gift. We see it in this verse. And it says, He gave His only begotten Son. Okay? This phrase, I think Dylan even mentioned it last week in Equipping Hour. It's not to be... Mistaken that it that it's emphasizing or that it's implying that Jesus was created. That's what the cults do. They'll take a verse, one phrase like that, and build a church on it. And 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 say that Christ was a created being. That's not what this phrase means. First of all, we know that if we you have to the analogy of faith, you always compare scripture with scripture, you interpret the not so clear with the clear. We know that the Bible teaches that Christ is the Creator. Not a part of the creation. Just flip over a page or two to your left. We see it real clearly. In John 1. John 1, the first four verses. In the beginning was the Word. okay, And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. You see that? The Word was God. I don't ask this too often, but you guys repeat that. The Word was God. Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. Through who? The Word who was God. The Word who was God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, the Word who was God, nothing came into being that has come into being. So it sounds like whoever the Word is created all things. Right? In Him was life and the life was the light of men. In case we don't... I think verse 4 gives it away. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. But in case we're not sure, exactly sure, who it's referring to, go down to verse 14. And the Word, who who was who? God. The Word who was God, who created all things, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory... Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Who's He talking about? He's talking about God the Son. God the Son. That word, only begotten Son, literally means unique. The unique One. The only One of His kind. He is uniquely God's Son. It's Trinitarian language is what it is. It's Trinitarian language. He's sharing, in other words, the same divine nature as God as opposed to when, as believers, when we're called the sons and daughters of God, children of God, who are God's children through adoption. He, he adopts us into His family. Father and son. The, the phrase, the language, father and son. It's Again, it's, it's these human terms that help us understand the relationships between the different persons of the Trinity or the Godhead. Does that make sense? It's talking about God the Son. This is God the Son who came in the flesh. The only begotten Son. God the Son. The second person of the Trinity. And so because the Son is God, His value is infinite. Because the Son is God who existed always, that's one of the things that's, I think, hardest for my mind to even begin to try to comprehend in this. when, when we're in this fallen world. I, I still have my... Until I'm in heaven, in other words, is, is the whole idea of before time <laughs> in eternity. But this is, this, this is God the Son who is with the Father. You can read about in John 17 that just their relationship that they've had before time began. This is who this is. This is who came into this world and put on human flesh. The gift is of infinite value. And so it's a, it's a because the gift is of infinite value that God the Son is the one. God the Son, the one who created the world, came into the very world who He created Suffered at the hands of wicked men that he formed in their mother's womb, was nailed to a cross that was made out of trees that he created. That's who came into this world, and because because of his infinite value as God the Son, this is a it, it, it it reveals the measure of the Father's love, knowing what his what the Son by putting on human flesh would endure from this sewer of a world. This sin-infested world. And then even endure His very wrath upon the cross. The Father knew that. That's what makes this love so amazing. And it says He gave Him. He gave Him. What does that infer? That it's a gift, right? Something that you give is a gift. It's not to be earned. And what does the word gave Signify. What does that word signify? Does it mean that He gave His only begotten Son to be a great teacher? He was a great teacher, wasn't He? But that's not all it means. He gave us His Son to be a great prophet. Well, we know He was the great prophet that, that Moses referred to. But that's not Ultimately, why he gave him great a great example. Obviously the greatest example, but that's not why he gave him. What did Isaiah mean in Isaiah 9, 6? Again, similar language. For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us. What what is implied? By this word gave and given. Because you know what the world says? Right? It's Christmas season, right? Jesus. Celebrate the birth of Jesus. You know what they say? They may may pat Him on the head in the manger. Oh, how beautiful. But you know what they really say? So what? That's what I said for 22 years of my life. Okay, yeah, I know the story, but so what? How does that affect me? It's a cute little story, basically. And, And some people may believe it really happened. But it's still, mm, so what? So what does this word gave mean? I think we can, since we looked at Isaiah 9, turn to Isaiah 53. I think Isaiah answers that very question. And of course the New Testament in many places does as well. But Isaiah 53 really shows us what it means by that God Gave his one-of-a-kind, unique son, the second person of the Trinity, willingly, voluntarily, came to this earth and was born, conceived by the vir- conceived in the virgin's womb, and lived a life here. But 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 look at Isaiah fifty-three, four through six. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Again, this is, this is the Word who was God who was made flesh, the Creator of all things. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well being fell upon him. And by his scourgings, we are healed. Do you realize that Jesus Christ was literally, practically skinned alive through the cat of nine tails that would just, 39 lashes would just rip his flesh from his body? He was marred beyond human semblance. This was the Word, God, who created all things who put on human flesh, God gave him to die. That's why He came. He gave him to be a sacrifice on His altar. It says in verse 6, All of us, all of us, guys, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. you realize the truth of verse 6, guys, is what makes John 3.16 so glorious that we should literally get on our knees and cry out to God in thanksgiving because all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. What does Proverbs say? There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. We all would have kept going our own way. We would have kept going our own way like the blind man marching to the cliff and we would have perished. Every one of us. And we would have been doing that which we desired to do. All mankind, the mankind that we read about in Romans 3, that's what this is a picture of. Liars, murderers, thieves, wicked, vile people. That's who we were without Him. Each of us turn into his own way, whatever that way is, suppressing the truth of God. Some some people's own way is the is the suppressing the truth of God and pretending, trying to suppress the truth and silence their conscience that there is no God when they know there is. Some of it is they don't because they don't like the God revealed in Scripture. They don't turn to atheism. They turn to false religion. They just, they just got to keep a few rules and they can somehow make it in. That's suppressing the truth. And some people just turn to vices and drugs and alcohol and pleasure. But that's all implied in, in us going our own way because none is righteous. None are seeking after God. None of us are seeking after God. He seeks after us. And He did it by sending His Son. He gave His Son. That's what it means to give His Son. We know the death He died. The brutal, the brutality of the cross. If we could have been there during those days and seen a crucifixion, we would have a much greater understanding. It was brutal. It was wicked. It was, it was as brutal as a death. That's why they tried to make it. And He did that for us. It says, For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. Jeremiah Burroughs, one of the Puritans, said this, Behold the infinite love of God to mankind and the love of Jesus Christ that rather than God see the children of men to perish eternally, He would send His Son to take our nature upon Him and thus suffer such dreadful things. Herein, God shows His love. It pleased the Father to break His Son and to pour out His blood. Here is the love of God and of Jesus Christ. The cross. So God's love and sending His Son, or we see God's love, and we see God's gift in His Son, And thirdly, we see God's promise. Okay, We see God's promise. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I don't ask you guys too often, but can I hear an amen? Amen. Amen. Because, again, He didn't have to. He didn't have to. And He could have made the condition... You got to be so smart. You got to be have a certain amount of money. You got to be well. You just fill in the blank, but he didn't. The condition is belief that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John six thirty seven says, "All that the Father gives me, they will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly." not cast out. And again, I just want to emphasize this before we move on. God's love for His own, those who come to Him, is eternal and without end. Okay? If you're here today and you know Christ, you, you cannot even fathom how much God loves you. Neither can I. Psalm Psalm 103, 17, the psalmist agrees. The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. See, it's eternal on those who fear Him. Anytime the Scripture speaks about those who fear Him, it's another way of saying those who love Him, His own, His people. And what described the list in Romans 3? They had no fear of God before their eyes. So what's the question, guys? We've looked at this, we've looked at, a little bit of, we've, we've looked at a little bit of God's sovereign grace. Now we're looking at that it's that his love, that, that we can we can have eternal life if we believe. What's the question that every one of us should be asking? And I would especially say if there was anybody here or anybody who may listen, if you're, if you're saying to yourself, Christ is not my Lord and Savior. I don't know this Christ. What's what's the question that a person like that should be asking? It's not this. It's not, did Christ really die for me? Or it's not, "Am am I one of God's elect? That's not the question that Scripture ever says that any of us should ask. The Scripture never commands us to ask these questions. The question that a person like that should ask is, do I believe? Do I believe in Christ? Am I I trusted in Jesus Christ? That's the only question we should ask. Ultimately. Now yeah, the Scripture for those in Christ, yeah, it says to examine ourselves. To make sure our calling and election is sure. But the unbeliever, you have one question. Do you believe? And I was thinking I was going to get a good quote for that. Because I've, I've read many good quotes. Spurgeon's got some good ones, you know. People walk up and Spurgeon say, I don't know if I'm one of God's elect. And he said, get on your knees, repent and believe, and then you're one, you'll know you're one of God's elect. But I thought of a better quote. In John 11, Jesus makes this very point, guys. This was when He, when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And, uh, and, and, and Lazarus' sister was speaking to him in, in, in John 11, 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, Jesus said to Martha, okay, listen to what He says. I am the resurrection and the life. Okay, He's declaring again who He is. In other words, if you want life, you've got to come through Me. I'm the way, the truth, the life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even if he dies. Right? He who believes in Me will live. Even when he dies physically, he's going to live eternally. And then he says, everyone who lives and believes in Me will never die. That means they'll die physically, but not spiritually, eternally. And then look what he asked her. He didn't say, at that point, did he say, now are you one of God's elect, Martha? No, he said, do you believe this? That's the question, guys. For every one of us. Every one of us here. The question is, is, Do you believe? Are you believing? Presently, are you believing? Are you presently trusting in Christ in this work of His that we've been talking about on the cross? Are you believing in Him? Are you trusting in Him? Do you believe this? Not, are you chosen? That's never the question. Do you believe in Christ? The command is to believe in Christ. Even from the lips of Christ, his command was repent and believe the gospel, the good news about me. That's always the command, and that's always the question we should be asking. What's the greatest gift you guys can think of that you've ever received? Just think in your mind of all the gifts we've received. Think of something even more specific a gift you received at some point in your life that you really needed. Maybe some kind of tool, Justin. You know, some some gift that you really needed. And, and I know we've all received great gifts. Great gifts that we really, not just wanted, but that, oh, I needed this. Beloved, what are we looking at today? What are, what are we remembering during Christmas? God has provided for our greatest need. Our greatest need. That we all would have went astray because of our sin, because of Adam's sin, we were born sinners. We are sinners by nature, but we do it because we desire to, by choice. And the result of that would have been an eternity separated from the love of God, not separated from God, from the love of God, under the wrath of God. The smoke of the torment going up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Remembering those in hell, remembering the opportunities that they had. Those are the ones who who received the stricter judgment. Guys, He provided for our greatest need, the salvation of our souls. And no amount, no amount or debt of sin is an excuse not to come. Well, if you'd have known what I've done in my life, what does Paul say in 1 Timothy 1.15? 1 it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And he says, "...among whom I am foremost of all, I am the chief of sinners." Who was Paul? Paul was a murderer. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul knew the Scriptures. And Paul was an enmity. Can you imagine being the man that tried to make the church of Jesus Christ extinct. And then God had mercy on him. That's what I tell people. If you think you're past the point of being saved, you need to understand about a man named Saul of Tarsus. That's why he said that. That He considered Himself the chief of sinners. So the question is, have you received God's greatest gift? His Son. Have you received Him? In John 1, 12 and 13, that's the language it uses. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. We receive Christ in truth for who He really is, guys. I mentioned last week, the title last week was Prophet, Priest, and King. And so it made me think about who Christ is. He is revealed in the Scriptures as prophet, as priest, and as king. And so we receive Him in truth. What does it look like to receive Christ? To believe upon Christ? As prophet, you believe in the truth that He taught about Himself, about the way of salvation. He was the great prophet. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. If you don't believe that, you're not saved. He is not a way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So you believe. You have to believe truth. As priest, you come to him to be saved. It's again a trust in his work on the cross that we talked about his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. That's his work as priest. You come to him, you trust him, you trust what he did for you on that cross. Hebrews 7.25 He is able to save forever. Listen to this. He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. Do you hear the promise in this? Whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then as king, you are willing to be ruled by Him. He's prophet. He's priest. He's king. This will be our last Scripture we turn to. Mark 8. As king, you're, be, you're willing to be ruled by Him. That's what it means when we say, Christ is my Lord and Savior. You're not just coming for fire insurance just to escape hell, but you're willing to be under His kingship. Mark 8. 34-38. Jesus is basically given a description of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. He says He summoned the crowd with His disciples and said to them, you know, there used to be gigantic crowds that would follow Him after He would do His miracles. And He would turn around and say things like this and then they'd all leave. He summoned the crowd with His disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself, take up His cross and follow Me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for a soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Beloved, this is what saving faith is looks like all of this, all of this, all of this, it's initiated by God in His grace. That's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. But what does it look like? When God, it's all initiated by God, we know that when God awakens a dead sinner unto life, because apart from that, we would have kept going astray. But when God does this, We believe. The question is to you. Do you believe? Are you believing? Are you trusting? Because that's what it looks like. We believe the truth. We believe the truth about God's Word. You meet people, they say they're Christians, and they don't even believe God's Word. No, the result of being born again is we agree with God. We believe God's Word. We believe Christ died for us. And we're willing to follow Him. That's what saving faith looks like. Not in perfection, guys. It's never perfection. But it's are, are, are we believing? Are we trusting? And are we following Him? Not in perfection, but is that the direction of your life? Is that the desire of your heart? Do you believe? If not, will you come to Christ. Again, what was the third point? The third and last point as we finish? The promise for those who believe is that they will not perish, but will have eternal life. They will not perish eternally in hell, but they will have eternal life. Think about what's in those three words have eternal life that means it's present now you don't wait till you die to get it, it says whoever believes has or will have what life eternal life is forever it begins the moment we believe and it's forever can't be lost can't be taken it's forever it's eternal present tense that never ends That's the promise from God who cannot lie. Who cannot lie. That if we look to Him, believe in Him, we'll be saved. Amen? And then for those those of us who I suspect would be most in this room, for those who have come, you have come to Christ. You have looked to the One. You, you believe in Him. You're trusting in Him. Childlike faith, right? You're depending on Him. Not your good works. You're depending upon Him. I, I ask this, guys, in a loving way. Don't ever, don't ever think I ask these questions to beat anybody over the brow. I ask myself the same questions. Especially looking at a text like this. When is the last time you shared with another person about this simple gift that can be theirs? Guys, John 3.16 is easy enough for a child to understand. And I I want that to encourage you. If you don't know what to say to somebody, go to John 3.16 and just look at it. You're indwelt by the Spirit of God. Just look at it. Let that be your guide. And and let's share the, the, the gift with others. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your... Your gift for us. We thank You, Lord. God, John 3.16 is so well known. Father, but it is so deep. It addresses our greatest need. It's a picture of Your Son. It's the truth of Your Son coming, fulfilling all of those types and shadows of the Old Testament. And Lord, we thank You, God, that You didn't leave us. You didn't leave us in that condition of turning our own way and going astray and, and... and, and apart from You, Lord, but You came to rescue us. Father, thank You so much. Thank You so much, Lord. We love You only because You first loved us. Lord, I, I love Your people here. Thank You for Your people here, God. I pray that, that You'll just continue to draw us closer to You and closer to one another, Lord, and encourage one another as we see the day approaching